Jesus said, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. What does Jesus's mission look like here? What's his mission here? What does Jesus's mission look like here? What does Jesus's mission look like here? What is Jesus's mission here? How do I know what Jesus's mission is? me. My name is Josh and uh, one of the pastors here. Glad to be with you. Welcome to all of you joining us online too. Really glad that you're able to be with us. I know a number of you are home sick or home with sick kiddos and uh, thinking of you today. So really glad you're with us too. Uh, Well, hey, we are in the book of Acts and uh, we're working through just the story of the early church and how the church began and how it uh, kept doing what Jesus had begun in the Gospels. And uh, last Sunday, Pastor Dave uh, led us through the last section of Acts chapter 9. And uh, we're going to just pick it up a little bit there. But before I do, let me pray. And then we're going to jump in. We're going to be into Acts 10. We're going to cover a bunch of ground today. Uh, So we're gonna move fast, but it should be good. So let's pray and just ask for the Holy Spirit's help as we unpack uh, what he's written. Let's pray. Father, thank you for Jesus. And uh, thank you for your grace and your goodness to us. And uh, Lord, thank you uh, just for the opportunity to learn from your word, to be changed. I pray today, Holy Spirit, you'd work in our hearts. Uh, You teach me and teach through me as I teach your word, help us understand it. And then help us apply it to see, uh, God, that you're not partial, that uh, you uh, are unbiased towards everyone and you call us to be the same and that the gospel is for everyone. So I pray you to encourage us, rebuke us, change us wherever that needs to happen in our lives, Lord. And uh, you do that by your spirit in Jesus' name, amen. Well, uh, As I mentioned, Pastor Dave wrapped up Acts chapter nine last week, verses 32 through 43. And uh, toward the end of that, just to make a long story short, what was happening was uh, Peter was busy in ministry. Uh, He started off in Jerusalem and then uh, he left Jerusalem though for Lydda. He left for Lydda, a little town uh, just towards the Mediterranean Sea. And when he gets there, Uh, he ends up healing a man by the name of Aeneas, a paralyzed man. And well, a few miles away was another little town called Joppa, which was right on the coast of the Mediterranean Sea. And it wasn't very far away. And the elders there uh, had been hearing about what was going on in Lydda. And then a a member of their church died, a woman by the name of Tabitha. And and Tabitha was... um, was evidently a pretty devout woman who uh, we read here in a moment, evidently she sewed garments for people. She cared for them in pretty unique ways and she was gonna be greatly missed. Well, she died. And so the elders hearing about what had happened in Lydda sent for Peter. And then Peter came to Joppa 
And when he gets there, uh, he's walking in and all the ladies that Tabitha had sewn different garments for were showing them to him and slowing him down. And he's like, get all these people out of here. And he goes in and he prays for Tabitha and God raises her back to life. Pretty incredible, all this that had happened. Well, you can imagine if you're Peter in that moment, uh, you've suddenly become a pretty popular guy in this little town. Would you agree? I mean, if you'd heard of that happening in a little town like Milford or Syracuse, everyone would know about it. And uh, so he sticks around for a while. And what we read is that he stuck around specifically at the house of a guy also named Simon, but this was Simon the Tanner. Simon the Tanner. Now, uh, this little verse might just seem like kind of a little connecting thing to the rest of scripture and to the rest of the story. But I would contend it's actually a pretty important detail that we don't want to miss. It's a detail we really don't want to miss in the story. Uh, And here's why. You know what a tanner does, right? They basically deal with dead animals for a living. For real, like that's their job. They're kind of like animal animal control, except uh, they're more involved. Because they get, the, they get the dead animal and then they skin the dead animal and then they make things out of the skins of that animal. So they've got to tan it. Hence his name, Simon the Tanner. We're not talking about, you know, like a, a, a banana boat model, you know, modeling because he's super tan and wears a lot of coconut oil. No, he actually, that's his, that's his, his job. His vocation is tanning the skins of dead Animals. Now think with me about this for a minute. Uh, this is 2,000 years ago in the Middle East in a pretty warm climate. Simon the Tanner, the guy who hangs out with dead animals. There's no refrigeration. There's no air conditioning. Uh, there's no freezers. There's no modern-day chemicals or embalming fluids. It's just the heat and his house and dead animals. Something tells me this place, you would have smelled it blocks away. Nasty, right? This is where Peter's hanging out. (laughs) This is where he decides to stay. And uh, this is really curious though, because check this out, Simon the Tanner, because Peter's staying with him, uh, he's a Jew, he's a believer, he's somebody who's following Jesus, clearly a follower of God, but it's a little bit ironic because you see, in the Mosaic law in the Old Testament, It makes it clear, if you touch anything dead, you become unclean. And anyone you touch becomes unclean. So Simon, Peter, is hanging out with Simon the Tanner, the guy who's ceremonially unclean all the time, making Peter himself really unclean. And if, it's, if this had been before the work of Jesus and his resurrection and some of the things that he had done, I mean, Peter would have never gone to hang out at Simon the Tanner's house, let alone stay there, would he? I think this was probably a pretty big step for Peter to stay with Simon the Tanner. I mean, he must have thought, you know, God has been so gracious to me. I've seen the works he's done. He's cleansed me. We've seen him save other people. And so because of everything he's done for me, surely I can hang out with Simon the Tanner. It was a pretty big step for him spiritually. And he probably felt pretty good about it. Do you ever have those times where, you know, you do something and you, you feel like you're obeying the Lord and you feel kind of good about it? I have a feeling that's probably how Peter was feeling. But then uh, what's gonna happen here is 
Peter's gonna get his world rocked. (laughs) Because while he thought he was making good progress, God had something far, far, far down the road for him that he still wanted him to get to. Because 35 miles up the coast from Joppa is a larger port city named Caesarea. And Caesarea, a little farther up the coast here, Caesarea was the Roman capital of this whole region. In fact, uh, for all of Judea, that Roman province, the capital of that area was Judea. And so there were Roman officials that lived there. If you were gonna be tried in court, you would go to Caesarea. We're gonna see that happen with Paul later in this book. And uh, the highest military officials of the region lived in Caesarea. Well, uh, that was a place, if you're Jewish, you really didn't care for the people there too much. Uh, At least not in terms of the Roman government. I mean, all the ways that they had oppressed you for so long all the ways that they had made your life miserable, all the ways that they had brought in all of these other cultures and all of these other religions and and had just totally uh, messed with everything that seemed right and perfect and conservative in your world. Everything got rocked. Nobody liked Caesarea, if you were Jewish. But at Caesarea, here's what we read. There was a man there by the name of Cornelius. And if you got your Bible, you can turn with me now to Acts chapter 10. Uh, There was a man named Cornelius, a centurion of what was known as the Italian cohort. A centurion means that he was uh, uh, an army official in charge of at least 100 men. Sometimes uh, these battalions were up to, uh, by some accounts, up to 1,000 even. But he's a high-ranking official. And not only is, this, is he a centurion, he's a centurion of the Italian cohort. Well, what's in, it, what's in Italy? Rome, the capital of the Roman Empire. He's like high-pedigree Roman official. It's a big deal, this guy. But check out what we also read about him. He was a devout man. You didn't expect to see that coming if you're reading this for the first time as a Jewish believer in that day, that a Roman centurion from Rome is a devout man. And not only this, but he's a, he's a God-fearer. He feared God along with his household. So evidently he didn't just lead people well in the army, he led his home well because his, his home feared God as well. And not only this, he was generous. He gave alms generously to the people and he prayed continually to God. Cornelius was a pretty incredible man. Pretty significant aspects of his character there are noted. Devout, God-fearing, generous, consistent in prayer. You know, throughout scripture over and over, uh, Hebrews 11:6 says that God rewards those who seek him. In uh, 1 Chronicles, uh, David leaves this charge to his son Solomon before he dies. He said, Solomon, my son, you know the God, your father, God of your father, know him and serve him with a heart that's whole, with a willing mind for the Lord searches hearts, understands every plan and every thought. Here's what he says, here's what David says to his son. If you seek him, he'll be found by you. But if you forsake him, he'll cast you off forever. Jeremiah says, the Lord says through Jeremiah, if you seek me with your whole heart, then you will find me. Then I'll show myself to you, God says. God rewards those who seek him. Cornelius is seeking God 
And what we're gonna see in Cornelius is that uh, God is going to reward him for that because at about the ninth hour, this would be three o'clock in the afternoon, Cornelius saying that he was a God-fearer means that he was a Gentile guy, in other words, not Jewish, but he likely went to the Jewish synagogue and worshiped with them. He just wasn't circumcised. And so he followed even the Jewish law. At the ninth hour, there would have been three times of prayer at nine o'clock, 12 o'clock, and three o'clock, three o'clock being the ninth hour after sunrise. And at, at that time, he saw clearly in a vision an angel of God come into his house and say to him, Cornelius. Now, I'm curious, some of you, I challenge you, go home this afternoon, three o'clock, start praying and see if when you lift up your head, if an angel shows up and says, hello. And then what would you do? Would you freak out just a little bit? Yeah, you totally would. We're gonna see that's exactly what Cornelius does as well. But here's the other thing I want you to see is that in, in appearing to Cornelius, sending his angel to him, God is showing no partiality. And in, in God, in who he is, in his character, as he relates to us, he shows no partiality, none. In fact, he's gonna offer salvation here to Cornelius, a Gentile. He shows no partiality. Not just a Gentile, but a Roman official, an oppressor of Jewish people. God's gonna, he represented everything that Peter and the other Jews would have hated. And God's offering, going to offer him salvation. Uh, The angel appears, Cornelius, and and look at Cornelius' response. He stared at him in terror. (laughs) I think that might be my response too. If I lift up my head, just stare and not know what to do for a second. Uh, What is it? Lord, what is it, sir? And he said to him, your prayers and your alms have ascended as a memorial before God. God's seen what you've been doing. He sees how you've been seeking him. He sees how you've been faithful in so many ways. And it's gotten his attention. And so he gives him some instruction. He says, so now here's what you need to do, Cornelius. Send men down the coast to Joppa and bring a a guy there named Simon who's called Peter. He's lodging with another Simon, a tanner whose house is by the sea. And Luke spares us, he doesn't say, and by the way, it stinks. You'll find it, (laughs) you know? Uh, So when the angel who spoke to him had departed, he called two of his servants and a devout soldier among them who attended him. And having related everything to them, Cornelius sent them to Joppa. Now it's curious that that God tells him to send these guys down the coast to Joppa to Peter. As we've been studying Acts, those of you who've been with us, do you remember anybody else being in Caesarea? If you just turn back a page or two to Acts chapter eight in verse 40, we read this. But Philip, remember Philip? He'd gone to Samaria and then he went to the Ethiopian eunuch And then after the Ethiopian eunuch got baptized, uh, Philip found himself at Azotus. 
And as he passed through, he preached the gospel to all the towns until he came to Caesarea. And that's evidently where he lived then. Later in the book of Acts, we find Paul coming back to visit Philip at his house there. Well, why didn't God just uh, have Cornelius send, send across town for Philip? Why did he have to send all the way down the coast 35 miles to get Peter? I think the reason is because this is gonna be such a monumental shift in what's happening with the gospel and in the spread of the church that it, it, it wasn't just gonna be reliant upon a guy named Philip. It had to be an apostle involved in this one. And so they send for Peter. In fact, uh, uh, Cornelius, uh, just like a, a good leader, right? He knows how to give commands and take commands in the Roman army. And right away, he gives instruction. He sends three guys down. And one of them we read is a devout soldier. Uh, that word's only used twice. The, of, of Cornelius and then of the soldier. So he too was a follower of God. Cornelius had had a big influence on the people around him. And now he sends them to Joppa to search for Peter. Well, the next day, as they were on their journey and approaching the city, Peter went up on the housetop at about the sixth hour around noon to pray. Now, he might have gone up to the roof because maybe it didn't stink as bad up there. He probably just went up because that's where people would go hang out. That was like the patio. You go hang up on the flat part of the roof. There might be some shade up there as well. And, and that's just where you would relax and get away for the afternoon. Peter goes up there to pray. And what we're gonna see here is that in doing so, uh, God aims to crush our biases. And I've, I lost my connection here, Rachel, so you're just gonna have to follow me. Is that good? Um, God aims to crush our biases. He's gonna crush Peter's because look what happens. In verse 10, uh, Peter becomes hungry. He wanted something to eat, but while they're preparing it, he goes up to the roof to pray. And while they're preparing his lunch, he falls into a trance. Maybe this is kind of like somebody who's hangry you know, they get really hungry and almost kind of angry or uh, maybe uh, somebody who gets hungry and they just kind of can't think straight for a while. But I don't think that's the only thing happening here. God's going to appear here and send a vision to Peter. And he just kind of edges out for a minute and he sees the heavens open in verse 11 and something like a great sheet descending, being let down by its four corners upon the earth. So imagine he's, he's sitting there and maybe he's kind of wondering, am I really seeing this or am I just, I gotta get something in my stomach. And he sees this big sheet come down, let down by the four corners. And in the middle of it, check this out, were all kinds of animals and reptiles and birds of the air. Peter must've thought, man, I'm really hungry. I've been hanging around this guy and all his dead animals for too long. Now I'm seeing animals coming down from the sky. What is happening here? But then there was a voice. Verse 13, there came a voice to him and it said, uh, rise, Peter. In verse 13, rise, Peter, kill and eat. Uh, but Peter said, by no means, Lord. By no means, for I've never eaten anything that's common or unclean. See, there were two categories of food, according to the Jewish law. 
there were things that were kosher and things that were unkosher, things that were clean and things that were common, things you could eat and things you couldn't. And all these were part of the dietary laws in the Mosaic law that Jews had to follow. And so when Peter sees these animals, all these animals that are unclean, not acceptable to eat, come down and he hears this voice saying, hey, Peter, get up, kill him, eat him. He's like, no, I don't do that. I've never eaten anything unclean, Lord. I'm, I'm devout. I followed your law. But I guess I am hanging out at the tanner's house, huh? But I've never eaten any of his, of his goods. I've never eaten anything that's common or unclean. And the voice came to him again a second time and said, Peter, what God has made clean, don't call common. Don't call it common. And this happened three times. And the thing was taken up at once to heaven. So I don't know if that means he saw the sheet descend three times or if this conversation happened three times. We're not really clear. But it took three times to get it into Peter's brain that this isn't just, he's not just hallucinating because he's hungry. Like uh, God is speaking to him. And he had to be wondering, what does this mean? And, and God was crushing his biases because we're gonna see here in a moment that God shows no partiality. Romans 2.11 says this, God shows no partiality. In Ephesians 4, God shows no partiality. In Deuteronomy, God shows no partiality. He cannot be bribed. And because of that, neither should we. Since God shows no partiality, neither should we. That's a pretty big statement though when you think about it, isn't it? I mean, because the reality is we all have biases. We all have prejudices, things we've prejudged that we've thought ahead of time about. Sometimes things we've thought deliberately about, sometimes other things that have just been cooking in our brains and kind of tend to leak their way out without us even realizing it. Think about some of our biases. You might have some bias in terms of ethnicity. You might have some bias in terms of uh, socioeconomic status. You might have some bias in terms of family pedigree. You might have some bias on where you live and where you're from or someone's popularity or their rank or their skin color or their personality or their gender. We all come with biases built into who we are. And uh, we're gonna see here that God longs to crush our bias. And good because God is impartial, so should we be. Let's keep reading here. Because Peter was inwardly perplexed as to what this vision might mean. And while he's thinking about it, behold, there's a knock on the door. I wonder who it is. Maybe it's uh, some Jewish leaders in Joppa who come to talk to Peter and get some advice. Maybe it's some of the Pharisees who wanna come and argue with him. Uh, maybe it's somebody who's sick and hurting and wants to be healed. Maybe it's somebody who has a question just in general about the gospel. Who could it be, I wonder, that's knocking on the door? Well, it was the men who were sent by Cornelius. 
And they come to Simon Tanner's house and they stood at the gate and they called out and asked whether Simon, who was called Peter, was lodging there. Who could it be, I wonder? Peter had to think. And while he was pondering the vision, the Holy Spirit said to him, behold, there's three men looking for you. Get up, go down, and accompany them without hesitation, for I've sent them. I guarantee you, the last people Peter expected to see were Roman soldiers from Caesarea, sent by the centurion from Rome. I mean, uh, Peter goes down and he sees the men and he's like, hey, I'm the one you're looking for. Um, Mind if I ask what you came for? (laughs) Now imagine if Peter had never had the vision. The the Roman soldiers knock on the door and they're like, are you Peter? Okay, Peter, you need to come with us. Yeah, okay, can I ask why? Well, Cornelius sent us, the centurion, he sent us down and uh, he saw an angel, he'd like you to come back and... Uh, you know, he, he sent for you. Now, these guys represent everything, again, I said earlier, the Jewish people hate. They were oppressors of them. They were unclean. They were Gentiles. They... If Peter hadn't seen that vision and if the Spirit hadn't spoken to him, I think Peter would have been like, um, thanks, but no thanks, guys. I think I'm gonna stay here. I don't, I don't know that he would have been all too fired up about going, let alone what happens next. See, here's what they say. They say, Cornelius, a centurion, an upright, God-fearing man who's well-spoken of by the whole Jewish nation, he was directed by a holy angel to send for you to come to his house. He wants to hear what you have to say. Now, again, look at what happens next. Peter doesn't send them down the road, you know, to, to find the Motel 6. He says, okay, well, guys, come on in. Why don't you stay here for the night and then we'll go tomorrow. And the next day though, he rose and went away with them and some of the brothers from Joppa accompanied him. Wonder why do you think that is? Well, again, if you're Peter and a Roman army guys show up to take you away, you're gonna be like, "Uh, hey fellas, I need somebody to have my back. Do you mind coming with me? You got me on this, right? I think I can trust them. The Holy Spirit said, but I'm, I'm a little anxious. You coming with me? And he takes these guys along with him. And then on the following day, they entered Caesarea. It was about a day's journey, 35 miles. And Cornelius was expecting them and he had called together all of his relatives and all of his close friends. And when Peter entered, Cornelius met him and he fell down at his feet and he worshiped Peter. But Peter lifted him up. He said, hey, what are you doing? Stand up. I'm a man like you. I'm, I'm human. Don't worship me. Worship God. I'm guessing both were a little nervous in this encounter. <laughs> but Peter makes him stand up. And as he talked with him, uh, He went in and found many persons gathered and he said to them, you yourselves, you know how unlawful it is 
for a Jew to associate with or visit anyone of another nation. But God has shown me that I shouldn't call any person common or unclean. Peter got the message. What's really curious here though, talking about Peter's bias, right? Is that up until this point, he had no issue hanging out with an unclean Jew, but those unclean Gentiles were totally unlawful for him. He had some built-in bias, didn't he? Friends, so do we. Peter says, so uh, because of what God said, when I was sent for, I came without objection. I wonder if Peter, when he was laying there trying to figure out the vision, remembered uh, one of the old prophets. Some of the Sunday school stories you might've heard growing up, you know? Like that of Jonah. Do you remember Jonah? What was the story of Jonah? God said, hey, Jonah, I want you to go to these people that are far from me and I want you to tell them the gospel. I want you to tell them about who I am. And uh, this is what I've called you to do. And what's Jonah do? He runs the other way. He hops on a boat and heads off into the sea. And then he jumps over the boat and a whale swallows him. Well, let me ask you another question. Do you know where Jonah was from? Joppa. Where's Peter right now? Before he goes to Caesarea? Joppa. And in Joppa, we have the example of, a, of one guy running away from what God calls him to do and another guy who maybe really didn't wanna follow God, but when God got a hold of his heart, he said, uh, when I was sent for though, I came without objection because clearly the spirit told me to come. Pretty big contrast, isn't there? In your life group questions this week, uh, you're gonna do a little study of, of Jonah and his reaction at the end of the book of Jonah and some of his continued bias, even after he finally obeyed. Well, uh, Cornelius said, uh, here's why I sent for you four days ago. It was about this time. So this is about three in the afternoon. I was praying in my house at the ninth hour. and Behold, a man stood before me in bright clothing. Freaked me out. Luke left that part out, but I'm thinking he probably said that. And he said, Cornelius, your prayer has been heard. Your alms have been remembered before God. Uh, send then to Joppa, ask for Simon, who's called Peter. He's lodging in the house of another Simon, a tanner by the sea. So I sent for you at once and you've been kind enough to come. So that's why we're all here. In the presence of God, we want to hear what you've been commanded to tell us by God. You know, um, I was reading this week uh, one person who preached on this, and he made a comment on this passage that, you know, uh, all of these people, if, if Peter was unsure if he should go or not, look how ready they were to hear from Peter when he got there. And he related it to this idea that maybe if somebody is on your mind that God brings to your mind or, or is leading you to, you can know that even if you're fearful, God's already been working on their heart. If you've got somebody you want to invite for Easter in a few weeks, if they're coming to your mind, you know what I would guess? God's probably already at work in their heart too. And maybe as you respond to his call on your life and go without objection, maybe he'll work in incredible ways in their life and they'll be ready to hear, just like everyone is here when Peter arrives.
But to do that, friends, we gotta put aside our partiality because God is not partial. In fact, Jesus' little brother, James, writes about partiality. He says, brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. Hold no partiality. He goes on even to say, but if you show partiality, you're committing sin. Now, I don't think what James is saying is that it's never okay to be discerning or to discriminate in a way, I don't wanna be misunderstood here, but because sometimes it is right to be prejudiced. It is right to discriminate. I mean, for example, let's say you're going away on vacation for a few weeks. Uh, Who are you gonna invite over to hang out at your home and uh, feed the dogs while you're away? Is it gonna be the guy who's a seven-time convicted felon for theft? Or is it gonna be somebody with a pretty good and upright reputation that you trust and have, have a good rapport with? That's a good sort of prejudice, right? What we're talking about here is is not moral prejudice or things like that. What we're talking about here and what James is talking about is just prejudice for things that ultimately don't matter before God. For your ethnicity, for your gender, for your family name, for where you're from, for your uh, potentially just... uh, social status or addictions or fill in the blank. But if you judge on those things, you're committing sin. So speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty with with grace. Show grace to others. For judgment's without mercy to one who's shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Now, this kind of plays itself out in two ways, I think, in the church, right? For us as followers of Jesus. God's not partial and neither should we be then. Well, in one way, uh, sometimes we can be prejudiced or, or biased or partial as a group towards individuals. It might play out where, you know, as a group of people or maybe a small group or a, a clique within the church and uh, you might just be a little bit biased towards people who are on the outside of that. Oh, they, they're not like me. Oh, they talk like this. Oh, they smell like that. They smell like Simon. Uh, they, uh, they're from that area. They have that background. They speak that language. They don't speak this language. They voted for that person. And we can become insular and be biased against those who are not like us. Now, you gotta understand, bias is natural, to some degree, right? God's created you with certain gifts and certain abilities and a personality. And there's gonna be people that are just your people that you connect with and that you get along with. That's a good thing. But you need to guard your heart so that that doesn't become your primary unifying factor to the detriment of those who are on the outside. On a Sunday morning, are you looking for those who are new, for those who maybe are not connecting in a group? Are you leaving the people you're talking to and walking over to talk to them? I challenge you to. Maybe even after we leave this morning, you'd be challenged in that way. So sometimes we can be biased or prejudiced as a group towards individuals, but sometimes as individuals toward a group. You know, it's, um, it's always kind of funny to me 
that in the one sense, uh, somebody might say, and rightly say, yeah, man, that group is kind of insular. They're keeping me out. But then in the same breath, we'll then say something really negative and just kind of mm, about those people. And I wouldn't want to be a part of their group anyway. And they're, you know, and just becomes this bitterness in their heart toward that group to where rather than entering in and becoming all things to all people like Paul does, they just stay away and never even try to love those people or that group of people that are maybe from that town or from that area or from fill in the blank, you see? So all of this basically, friends, it comes down to our hearts. It comes down to our hearts. And and I think uh, right away of a story Jesus told, actually a joke that Jesus told. Do you know Jesus told jokes? He did. He used humor a lot. In fact, uh, one of his big ones, uh, he was telling a story and he said, yeah, so uh, why do you point out the speck in your brother's eye when you've got a plank coming out of yours? You know, why do you go help him try to get the sawdust, in other words, out of his eye when you've got a two by four sticking straight out of yours? You might want to remove this first before you try helping him. It says it in Matthew chapter seven. I think that applies not only in terms of our sin and those sorts of things, but even in terms of our bias, right? Just, just be careful looking at a group that you might feel is, and maybe rightly so, is biased towards you or towards others. Make sure you take care of the plank before you go after the sawdust. Because here's the deal, the gospel is for all, it's for everyone. It's for everyone. Salvation's available to everyone. The gospel is for anyone. Peter opened his mouth then after they invited him to preach and he's like, truly I understand God shows no partiality. Because if this was last week, I don't think I got it yet. But today I do. So here I am, I'm preaching to all of you. But in every nation, Anyone who fears him and does what is right is is acceptable to him. As for the word that he sent to Israel, preaching good news of peace through Jesus Christ, by the way, he's Lord of all. You yourselves know everything that happened in all Judea. You've heard all the stories beginning in Galilee after the baptism that John proclaimed. How God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power and he went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil for God was with him. And we're witnesses of all that he did, both in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. And they put him to death by hanging him on a tree. But God raised him on the third day and made him to appear, not to all the people, but to us who have been chosen by God as witnesses, who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. And he commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he's the one appointed by God to be judge of the living and the dead. In fact, to him, all the prophets, your whole Bible, bear witness about him. They all point to him. So that anyone who believes in him would receive forgiveness in his name. Anyone. Friends, the gospel's for all. It's for any sinner to be saved. It doesn't matter what you've done. It doesn't matter what you've left undone. It doesn't matter what's been done to you. If you would turn to Jesus and believe, he would save you. 
That's the gospel. There's no partiality before the cross. Every one of us are royally jacked up in our sin. And every one of us is offered incredible, complete, total grace in Jesus Christ. It doesn't matter who you are. It's for any sinner to be saved. In fact, while Peter was still saying these things, Peter gets his sermon interrupted. The Holy Spirit fell on everyone who heard the word, proving to him that what he had heard from God was true. In fact, the believers from among the circumcised who had come with Peter, they were amazed. Those guys he brought with him to have his back, they were amazed too because the Holy Spirit was being poured out even on the Gentiles. I mean, they were hearing him speak in tongues and extolling God in other languages. And then Peter declared, well, can anybody withhold water for baptizing these people? I mean, they've received the Holy Spirit just like us. There really is no distinction. And so he told them, be baptized then in the name of the Lord Jesus. See, this is the order, right? You, you trust Jesus, you get the spirit, then you get baptized. If you haven't gotten baptized and you've trusted Jesus, received the spirit, why haven't you gotten baptized? Get baptized. Go sign up at the connect desk when we leave this morning. And then they asked Peter to stay with them for a few days. The gospel's for everyone, friends, for any to be saved, but it also, leave you with this and the worship team's gonna come, we're gonna sing and call it a morning. It's not just for every, any sinner to be saved, it's for every Christian to be changed. The gospel isn't just uh, for the moment you trust Christ. It's for your whole life. Yes, it's the start, but it's also the beginning and the end of your life. In fact, if, if you've trusted Jesus or you've proclaimed that and ascended to that mentally, but nothing's ever changed in your life, has it really saved you? Because the gospel changes us. In fact, uh, if you keep reading a little bit here in Acts chapter 11, it changes the believers back in Jerusalem. See, now when when the apostles and the brothers who were throughout Judea heard that the Gentiles had received the word of God, or excuse me, they, they heard this. And so when Peter came back to Jerusalem, the circumcision party criticized him. And they said, what were you doing? You went to uncircumcised men, you ate with them. What were you thinking? But then Peter begins to explain everything to them in detail. And he lays out how everything happened and he retells this story of Cornelius. Luke evidently thinks this story is so important. He retells it like four different times. This is the second. But we get down to the end of this and at verse 15, uh, Peter recalls this moment where the Holy Spirit fell. He says, as I began to speak, the, the Holy Spirit fell on them just like it did on us in the beginning. And I remembered the word of Jesus, how he said, John baptized with water, but you'll be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Well, if, if God gave the same gift to them as he gave to us when we believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I that I could stand in God's way? When they heard these things, it says, 
these believers in Jerusalem fell silent. And then they glorified God. And they said, then to the Gentiles also, God has granted repentance that leads to life. See, the gospel changed them. And it changes us. And it should be continuing to change you and I. And we should continue to repent because we're not, God's not done with us yet. Amen? Friends, God shows no partiality. He shows none. So neither should we. The gospel's for all. Let me pray.